cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbit! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut. Cut! Cut! Check the game. Cut it! Cut! I did also, the scene where him that William and Russell have where Russell essentially lays out this plan of leaving the band where he's like, I've outplayed them. I've sort of he says that beyond. he's like above them musically, but he doesn't have the heart to leave them or he's like built too much with them to leave. And also like the more money that they make, the bigger their houses oh, yeah. get, the and harder I, it is to leave. To leave. That's right. And I think that's an extended scene. I don't think it's that long. In the theatrical cut. At no, least I don't remember it being that long. It's a lot long. shorter. I feel like I just remember cut. him being like, some of the people you meet are really amazing people and like, just make us look cool. That's like all I remember. Going back to the lobby, I feel like I should mention Eric Stone Street playing the front desk guy who is like so good in like the 30 seconds that he's in that to where I did a double take when I watched it recently. I was like, oh my God, that's Eric Stone Street. who's really good. And then there is a scene before the pool scene that we were just talking about and after the lobby scene where Williams, in, or I don't think he's even in the room with him, but it's like all the, all it's like Polexia and Sapphire and they're just like throwing scarves on the lampshade and like Polexia's running around with like an incense stick. That's the Maryland suite in the Roosevelt. Really? Yes. Wow. To which I was like, does that mean the lobby is the Roosevelt? I would have to go back and check. Oh, you're right. Because I like thinking of it, you have the arched doorways. You have like the tile floor that they're on. There's like statues. So I'm thinking that's because if, if that's the Maryland suite, then that has to be yeah, the lobby. Unless they were like, hey, let's shoot another lobby somewhere else. But like, else why then, would they yeah. do that when they have the Whoa. Roosevelt? So yeah, that was the Maryland suite. Cameron Crowe just says, he was like, they said it was haunted and I believe it was because once we threw all those girls in there, they just went absolutely batshit like the entire time we were trying to shoot in there. He's like, so I'm pretty sure Marilyn Spirit's like still in there restless, like trying to party or whatever, which I'm assuming they outfitted to look like a 70s hotel because that's definitely not what the Marilyn Suite looks like. No. Because it no. has like two queen, like full beds and it just looks like a regular hotel. But yeah, that was that's the Marilyn Suite. So after Russell says, I'm telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. Second time he gets rejected, they say that they will do the interview tomorrow. So that's two. If you're keeping track at home. Russell gets electrocuted. Stillwater plays love thing. That was a common thing that would happen. You know, dodgy, you know, electronics going from city to city. The control level isn't what it is today. And so having these like malfunction of like bands getting electrocuted or like lights, the house lights not coming on and sound systems failing was definitely a thing that that used to happen back in the day. And maybe my favorite cameo, Mark Marin, which a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people even realize that that is Mark Marin because he looks completely different. And there's actually a scene when you're talking about Russell getting electrocuted, there's a scene right before that that's really short. And it's in the uncut version and it's William interviewing the bass player. And he's like, so what kind of like chemical do you bring to Stillwater's like partnership or group or whatever? And he says, I I'm the bass player. And he's like, okay, but if you weren't in the band, like 
what what kind of what do you think would be missing from the band? And he's like, the bass. And during the scene, it's right before they go on at night. It's like during the day and it's raining. So that sets up the entire reason Russell gets electrocuted is because the stage is being doused in water. Oh, which before I was like, well, I get that he got electrocuted because it was like the 70s. Shit was malfunctioning. But seeing that, I was like, oh, that completely sets up Russell getting electrocuted. That may be a scene that would probably benefit to be in the theatrical cut. But like you, I always thought that it was just shoddy just equipment like, oh, and yeah. the things that would happen. So going back to the Mark Marin scene, I just love the energy between Mark Marin and, and Noah Taylor. And, and so just, good. I know. wish they had kept that extended scene, their yeah. fight scene. Yeah. When he starts fighting, he's like, what is that? What are you, Bruce Lee? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Mark Marin looks completely different. And maybe you can recognize in the voice. Definitely. Um, you can tell that it's him, but I, I know a lot of people that I've talked to him like, Oh, did you know that Mark Marin's and almost famous are like, what? Like, yeah. yeah, he's the, he's the close the gate guy. Yeah. He's the close the gate. Yeah. Between the scenes where they arrive in Tempe at the hotel and before Russell gets electrocuted, there is a scene where like Manny was saying, Russell says, we'll do the interview tomorrow. He, William stops by Russell's room and Russell's like in a mood and he's just like, go the fuck away, please, please go away. Penny answers and says, hey, you know what? Let's just do the interview after the radio show tomorrow or later or whatever. So they go to the radio station to record with um, Quincy Allen, who is a DJ who does a show. I forget what it's called, but it so reminds me of the sounds, the deep end. Mm hmm. And Quincy Allen's played by Kyle Gass of Tenacious D. Love it. Which I was Love so it. sad it didn't make the final cut because it's such a good scene. Not to butt in, but the rehearsal footage and the bonus features. Is it hilarious? It's so fucking God. good. It's so good. So they're at the station. And this is also, as Manny was saying, the conflict between Jeff and Russell kind of comes to a head here a little bit too. Because Kyle Gass is playing Quincy Allen and he's just smoking the entire time and going off on these weird tangents about dogs and something fever and something. And he says, he butt. says, Jeff, baby, the babe, the baby. And he's just like, it's BB. And so he ends up passing out for like a few seconds because he's so high. And before this, Jeff BB is saying to Russell, like, nobody can play guitar like you do, man. And Russell's like, oh, thanks. And then when Quince falls asleep, Russell's like, why do we have to wait till we're on the radio in Arizona for you to give me a compliment? And Jeff's like, I don't have to kiss your ass. That is not my job. Everybody else kisses your ass. And so you can kind of see the conflict between the two members of the band. And then they start saying immature things like, what do they say? They say smegma and poop or something. They just start saying shit on the, on the radio because they're on air and the DJ's falling asleep. And then Kyle Gash just wakes up and says, I think that went well. And like, that's the scene. And this did happen to Neil Young. He was on a radio station and the DJ fell asleep while he was being interview interviewed. But instead of like saying obscenities over the radio, they just like left. <laughs> but that, that was a true story of something that happened. After this, we also have in the hotel, I think it's before the pool scene you were talking about, where William's mom calls and Polexia, not Polexia, Sapphire answers, Rujabak. She's like, oh, they're they're recording at the radio station. Is this Marianne with the pot? And when his mom is like, no, this is not Marianne with the pot. And so she goes into this huge kind of monologue about how 
William's a good kid and they're all taking care of him and how this is more than she's ever said to her parents. And then she goes, oh, this is the maid speaking, by the way, and then hangs up. That originally was supposed to be someone else. That wasn't even supposed to be Ferruja's scene. Who was it supposed to be? I don't know. Cameron never says who it was. He just says that was supposed to go to someone else. But for reasons I can't say, it didn't end up happening. And so we just ended up setting up Ferruja with it. And she did a great job. I know what's going on. And I think that Ferruja has all these scenes like that in the movie where she goes off on these tangents that are really good and really deep. Like later on when she's talking about Russell, about how the new groupies suck. That's another scene in itself that's really good that she has. And then once they're leaving, uh, when they're breaking the gate and she's like running along with the bus and she runs into the wall. I remember that from the trailer, which is weird because I didn't see the movie for a while. But I guess that was like their only action scene because the girl that hits the wall is a double. Like it's not Ferruja. Oh, really? Yeah. That's what uh, I saw in the the commentary. How do they pull that off? I don't know. Is that they had like a double? Maybe like when she hits the wall and like turns her back it's like a double and they like mask them i don't know interesting yeah we get to what i call cringy part number two and it upsets me because they use probably the best song in the whole soundtrack in my opinion and this scene which is led zeppelin's that's the way and that scene starts off so well too with that song right every time i hear that song i think of almost famous not because of the scene but just in general of the overall movie just the vibe that it gives me and what it makes me feel. Also, before you go on, Jimmy Page actually said that that was the best usage of Led Zeppelin music in the whole movie. Are you serious? Yes. Wow. I don't know. Continue. I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. Anyway, so the scene in, in question is they're on the bus and it's early and basically there are high school girls in uniform running alongside the bus and the bass player basically is trying to wake up Russell's like, Russell, wake up. They're high school girls, man. And so they're like running and he's like looking out the window and basically fetishing them. That's why it's obviously super cringy. He's like, and he has another line that's super creepy. He says, though, like, I can't remember what line it was. It's like. This is him saying it's like, they're so tasty. Or, yeah, or I think that's what lines. he said. That bit was especially more cringy to me when I was researching the cast and kind of what they were up to. And that actor. Yeah, Mark Kozilek was actually um, accused of sexual misconduct recently. Oh, no. And so, allegedly. And so, when I went back and I saw that, I was like, eh. Among other controversies, like, most involve him just being like a douche. But, yeah, that was one of the things where I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is where Penny talks about how Russell is her last project. And one of the things that I forgot to mention early on is back in San Diego when they're at the arena, Penny's sort of on her way out of being groupie. Yeah, she keeps saying she's retired. She's retired at the age of 17, which is, if you think about it, kind of insane to be like over it at that young age. You think about all the things that she's gone through where she's just like burnt out. There's actually, there's a few scenes in the bootleg or not the, the extended version where she talks about, you know, plans she has or whatever, like in one of the scenes when they're back in the hotel, I think at the riot house and Polexi is talking about like Russell and Penny and how they're like trying to pretend they don't want each other, but they do. And then Penny goes, I need ice. And Russell gets up that whole scene when they're in the ice machine is a deleted scene. And that's in the extended version where she says, I'm retired. 
And then he says, you're retired like Frank Sinatra's retired. Oh. And then when they get to, I think it's also when they get to the riot house earlier on, when she's saying hi to like everyone that she knows from other bands, like she sees Peter Frampton, who's I think like the roadie for Black Sabbath or something. And she says, I'm going to go to India and then I'm going to come back and go to college for one year. And she like lays out her whole plan. And so you just get kind of that her saying that she's retired and her saying that she like wants to go to school and travel. What do you think about the line that she tells William where she says, Russell is my last project. Uh, The band is good, but he could be really great. What do you think she's implying there? I don't know, because you could see it as. Oh, wait, because also Russell was talking about something similar earlier where he was saying that he's at a higher level than the band is, but he doesn't want to leave. So I don't know if she's like trying to get him to leave or trying to get him to stay. I'm not really sure. Or what if she's trying to make him like a more respectable person, a respectable man or or, trying to change him? Yeah. Or leave his wife. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. That maybe she's trying to convince him to like leave his wife and be with her. And that's what she means by project. Maybe. There's a lot of ways that you could sort of interpret that line. But I I never really paid much attention to it until this time where I was like, she's actually trying to change something into Russell, whether it's like doing a solo thing or just being with him like 24 seven. Yeah. Um, I thought that was like a really interesting line. There's nothing better then being on a tour bus and then stopping at a gas station and then getting a bunch of junk food. And That's drinks. true. Like, I love that scene. And then of course they're leaving, you know, Jeff Beebe behind. He's like, I'm only the fucking singer. Yeah. That's a good scene. The Topeka show. This is where Beth, the clairvoyant. Your aura is purple. I have hydroponic pot. Oh yeah. But that scene where William's talking to his mother And he can't hear her and she tells him, I love you over and over again. The way that it's set up and executed and then the double meaning where he's looking at Penny and saying, I love you, but he's not really saying it to his mom and saying it to him. Then she just kind of laughs it off. It's it's just the way it's set up. It's it's perfect. So there are two scenes in this sequence that were cut before, because this is right before we get into the whole t-shirt debacle where like everyone's blurred except for Russell. So before this, there were two scenes that were cut. One of them is kind of alluded to in that scene where once Jeff Beebe is going on nuts about the T-shirt, Russell's like, dude, are you doing coke again? And he's like, yeah, all the time. He actually is supposed to be on coke in that scene. There was a scene that was cut where Will is, I don't know if he's looking for Russell or looking for Penny. He's like going around the, the arena, like trying to find someone. He walks in on Jeff doing coke with like a roadie or something. And they're just like, hey, hey. And then like Will just kind of leaves, but like doesn't say anything. And so that was a scene that was cut. Another scene that was cut too. Russell is supposed to run into his dad before the show, who's now dating like a really young hot girl because of how Russell's in a band. Guess who his dad was going to be? Guess who's going to play his dad? Who? A rock person, rock legend, which I can't really picture, but. Uh, Eagles? No. Think of Crosby, Stills. Oh, Crosby. No. Nash. Are you just going to go through them? No. No. Neil Young. Oh, that. Yeah, it was going to be Neil Young. Wow. Which I can't really picture Neil Young acting. 
he would be just Neil Young. Yeah. Like, but that was, so that off. was one of two scenes, but because they ran out of money, they weren't able to shoot it. I never noticed that Beth has incense in her hair, like a cigarette. She I has never it noticed sticking that either. out of over here when right before they do the t-shirt unveiling. Yeah. Yeah. It's sticking out of the, the top of your ear. Oh, interesting. One of the many things that I love about the t-shirt and obviously how you were saying how Russell's the only one in focus and everyone's in the background is when they go to the bass player, classic bass player line. He's like, I'm just hungry, man. Yeah. Let's just go get some barbecue or something. <laughs> just could not give a shit about yeah. the stupid t-shirt. And I think that they all sort of prototype, prototype. They're all stereotypical to what they play. Like yeah. Jeff Beebe is the stereotypical lead singer, guitar, wants all the attention. The guitar player with Mystique is, is yeah. Russell. The bass player barely says anything, just plays his Weird. part. And then the only one that seems out of place is the drummer. Is the drummer, because he never says anything. He never, and drummers are always pretty vocal and yeah. like kind of goofballs. And he's just, yeah. I mean, but he does have a great line When later. he does say something, it's great. It, it's great. I just think it's hilarious that the t-shirt looks the way it does, because it's so awful and it's so bad. And if it was... If it wasn't any other color than white, I probably would have bought it. Great part to end that is how William goes into the box and grabs it. And, put, and he puts and it. And I can imagine Cameron Crowe doing that. He totally did that. Every time when they talk about stuff, as far as like band memorabilia, there's another scene that was cut later that I'll tell you about that has to do with that. But yeah, and you can even see it in William throughout the movie. Like every time something happens that pisses him off, he takes something. I don't know if you noticed that. No. But it, when they get to the riot house, something happens and he gets upset or something doesn't turn. I think it's when his mom calls and he's like, your mom freaked me out. He takes all the notepads from the riot house and all the pens. And then in the second time, I think Russell denies him the interview when Penny opens the door and says, come back later or something. He steals a bunch of ashtrays and a bunch of matches. And so this, after they fight, he steals the t-shirt. The house party. This is Neil Young's Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. And that the house party, one of the big reasons why he goes to the house party is because he had that confrontation with Neil Young, his dad. Like that was oh, supposed to be kind okay. of the catalyst that makes him go to the house party. I see. A quasi rock star crashing a house party? Would that happen? If the environment was right. Like Russell's just had the fight with his band about the t-shirts. He's just... Suppo like he was supposed to have met his dad with his new girlfriend who is pretty much his dad was using his popularity to get a hot girlfriend. So he's dealing with all these people that are like sellouts basically. And so he just wants to go and hang out with fucking people in Topeka. Especially in that time. So I could totally see it happening. Yeah. I could definitely see it happening in the seventies. Maybe not now because of social media and yeah, everyone how you having would be exposed phones. and like, and just imagine yeah. Not even a semi-famous person showing up to your house party. Everyone would just bust out their phones yeah. and like documenting yeah. every second. And it'd be on Instagram within like 30 seconds. Right. Um, but I agree. I could see that. Yeah. I could see that totally happening. Favorite line of that whole, well, besides him on the on the roof, when he's talking to the kid that's parents own the house and he was like, you're real. He's yeah. like, you're more real than all the machinery. Yeah. And, but my favorite line is in 11 years, it's going to be 1984. Think about that. <laughs> Which is another like dated. It's like, yeah, really? I like when he says, <laughs> I think he says, do you want to see me feed a mouse to my python? And he's like, like yes. 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 I would not want to see that. If I was on acid, I might. I would definitely not want to see it <laughs> if I was on acid. That'd be the last thing that I want to see. 
obviously the highlight is him on the roof. I am a golden God. The delivery, Billy Crudup's delivery is just spot on. Yeah. It's when he lines. says I'm on drugs and he's like doing this with his hands. That's, that's really good. And then when William tells him come down on the roof and he's like, okay. Yeah. And then he, and like, then he just jumps like a off. Five-year-old and then yeah. just jumps off. And then we fast forward the next day. Russell realizes what he's done and he's like sobering up and then Dick comes in. How strong is Noah Tyler or Noah Taylor? Sorry. Yeah. That he can like pick him up. Billy Crudup, like swole Billy Crudup. Yeah. Noah's like a tiny man. He's like all skinny and short. Yeah, he's not very big and he's he's skinny. He only picked him up for like a few seconds, but even then I I couldn't do that. (laughs) No way. And this is where we have the part going back to the beginning of the episode when you were talking about the Allman Brothers. And how he yelled at Cameron of like, are you a cop or FBI? This is exactly what Russell does. He says, look at him staring at me with his eyes. How do we know you're not a cop? And he like grabs him and like shakes him. And that description of where he's, where Russell's telling um, William about how he's like reading him with his eyes. That's ideally what Cameron Crowe did in real life where he was just analyzing, seeing what was in front of him and sort of taking mental notes. And that's what he wanted to be. He didn't want to be interfering with the process of the rock stars in their yeah, process. He, was just and he like just wanted to be a fly on the wall and just report on what he was seeing. And so I, again, more of the reality sort of trickling. Into and I the also story. like when um, they're trying to get Russell to leave and he's like, I see what you're doing and, and I, I like, like it. it. This is so good. I hurt the flower. <laughs> That's good. Dun, 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 dun. That's right. <laughs> Could you tell that was tiny dancer? I could probably only tell because I knew what was, it coming. was coming next, yeah. but I don't think anyone listening could, eh, you might be able to. Maybe the tiny dancer sequence is sort of like the moment that everyone probably remembers. And I related to Wayne's world because Bohemian Rhapsody was already a hit song, but it was lost for a generation. And then you fast forward to the nine early nineties when Wayne's world comes and does and has that scene also in a car, also in a vehicle, people going crazy, rocking out to it. It's the same idea where, you know, Tiny Dancer was a hit song, but you fast forward, you know, 25 years later and you bring it back in such a moment like that. It made Elton John have to play it in every concert from thereafter. And people would record, hey, can you play the Almost Famous song? And it became its own phenomenon, uh, just sort of like Bohemian Rhapsody. God, 25 years. So it came out 25 years before. So what would, what would be the new version of that that would be in a movie now, do you think? I have one, but it's, it's way earlier. What is it? Claire de Lune. Oh, yeah. But I mean like something where like a Play sing-along. that song from Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> Mambo number five. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> or like, no, I know. I know what you're saying. I can't think of one either. But I it would can't. be what, 1995, right? Yeah, so it'd have to be something from like the 90s. They shot the Tiny Dancer sequence in two days. When they got to the shooting schedule, they were running out of time. And so originally they didn't have two days. They had maybe like half a day to shoot it. And the cinematographer could tell that Crow was bummed that he wasn't. they weren't going to have the time. And so John told the cinematographer, basically said, you know what, let's push the rest of the schedule back and let's spend the time that you really want to, to make this scene happen. And so they ended up shooting it for two days. They sang that song 
over and over and over again. Yeah, I heard Noah Taylor was like so over it. That actor who plays their tour manager, who's kind of in the background in the bus scene, if you notice, he's not an Elton John fan. And so he's really not into it. And there are certain shots where you look at him and he's just not even into it. He's just kind of like sitting there like, we've been singing this song well, for yeah, like in the beginning of the two scene, hours. You can see Noah Taylor and he's like hanging off of like the bus seat and he's just like this for a while. And then he gets into it a little more. Cameron Crowe's first date was to an Elton John concert and ended disastrously. Oh no. According to him, which to imagine you're watching Elton John and you have a date. And that ends up terribly. I don't know. Unless your date is not into Elton John. I don't know how that, how you screw that up. I feel like even going to a concert with someone you don't really like still ends up pretty okay. Cause yeah. you focus on the concert. Right. There's usually a moment where it sort of clicks and you're both into it. Maybe yeah. you don't like the artist, but there is a song that you like and yeah. you kind of hit it off from there, but I don't know. It's not meant to be. Guess not going way back to the beginning of when we first saw the movie. I don't remember seeing the movie, but my first time hearing about the movie was when Dave Grohl was on the Craig Kilborn show and sang Tiny Dancer. The late show with Craig Kilborn. Do you remember that guy? R.I.P. Yeah, he was on there and he talks about Tiny Dancer and he's like, I'd like to thank Cameron Crowe for opening a part of me. I wasn't sure I had. And I was just like, I've never heard of this movie before. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh my God, this is the song. This is what he's talking about. So, And that was... Like 2002, I think. Around there? I think it was 2002. I had already gone the reference, so I definitely had seen it already. So that kind of clears the mystery of when I first saw it. So I'm guessing I probably saw it in high school for the first time. Greenville, Tennessee. It's a think piece about a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom. I really hope that that's a real Lester Bangs That is such a journalism person thing because I went to school for journalism. I got my degree in journalism. I've done that so many times. Not like it probably wasn't as good as that, obviously, but you can pull things out of your butt as a journalist and people will be like, oh my God. Like, yeah, not even, I would, I would go as far as to say like an English major writing papers. Like that scene always resonates so much with me because I'm like, oh my God, I've done that so many times at school. Not being an English or journalism major, <laughs> I still have, I still awe that people can do that just to pull it out of their ass. But I really hope that that was sort of a reference to another line. If not, then it just kind of ups what a great writer Cameron Crowe is. This is also a scene where William plants the seed that they could be using Penny if she doesn't realize it already. Because they have that moment in the restroom where he's in the bathtub and then she comes into oh, pee yeah. and she's like, He's like, this is moving way too fast. Like I thought we would like get to know each other and then I'd see UP. Um, but the the focus of that conversation is where William sort of starts to realize that they could be using Penny and the Band-Aids and whether she's okay with it. And she seems mm-hmm. oblivious to the fact that it's happening or, or, or she knows and, she knows doesn't, and care. doesn't care. Yeah. Because she still thinks that she's going to end up with Russell. And then we go to the deflowering scene, which was based off something that happened to Cameron Crowe in real life. But other than that, he does not elaborate into any details. When I was listening to the commentary with his mom, he says, he's like, this did happen. I think one of the other people that's on the commentary are, are like, so how old were you? And he's like, 
anyway, and like changes the subject. And then he goes, I was 15. And then like, they like quickly change the subject. Do you think Cameron Crowe's mother was like in the same room? Totally. Absolutely. So then, yeah, I definitely think it did happen. And he was 15, but I like the way they set up that scene. Cause it's really like tastefully shot. And I like how they light Patrick Fugit's eyes. You get his eyes. And you can see like the scarves like floating around in his eyes, which I think is really cool. And I love the music. Nancy yeah. Wilson's score right there. I think it's perfect. Anytime like the score kicks in, it's always in a really good spot. Yeah. Like it always matches the scene really well. And I love the sort of the like the I'm going to leave you alone wave that yeah. Kate Hudson does. Right. Um, and the last before it fades out, you hear um, the clairvoyant. Um, what's her name? Where she says. I've seen the future and it's not that bad or something. Oh no, I see how this goes and it <laughs> it's does. Not that it's bad. not that bad as it fades to black. It's so good. <laughs> Going back a little bit in that scene when um, Ben Fontorius calls him and I love the little quip of where he's like, get it together. He's yeah. like, we already have Hunter S. Thompson yeah. of writing about shit like yeah. this. And again, do you want to tell the kids about who Hunter S. Thompson is? Kids, Hunter S. Thompson Look him up. There's actually another bit later, I think, when William goes back to the Rolling Stone offices where uh, Ben Fontores is looking back or he's like leading William into his office. And there's a Hunter S. Thompson poster in the back for Aspen Sheriff. Oh, really? And it's like you see like the sheriff star, you see the Gonzo fist. But I guess... Hunter S. Thompson was never in the music offices in Rolling Stone. So that's like inaccurate. Yeah, he was... He was on his own doing his nowhere. His career to this day is I we need to do if you're don't loathing. even understand how I don't I don't even know how how that was able to happen. But he, he but was, yeah, if you don't know who he is, definitely look him up. Um, obviously, his claim to fame is, you know, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro. But it goes way beyond that and all the books that he's written. All the books on the campaign trail, the rum diaries, just if you can read anything that he's done, I would suggest you do because it's very, very interesting. Enter Cleveland Swingos Celebrity Inn. Now, sort of like the Riot House, Swingos was started off as a restaurant in Cleveland and downtown back when downtown Cleveland was like dead. And slowly it built up. Rockstar started going there and it eventually turned into like a hotel. And it was the same idea where if you were a rock star touring in Cleveland, that's where you had to be. That's where, you know, Bowie showed up a lot of the times. And speaking of Bowie, you're hearing uh, a waiting for the man and another great line. And I can't believe I looked up who the actor was and I, it's Nick Swartzen. Nick Swartzen, yeah. It says, it's Bowie. So when Bowie runs into the elevator, the people in the elevator with him are Cameron Crowe's sister, real life Anita, and her kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're I had no idea. In the elevator. It's Bowie. I've quoted that so many times for just anything where I'm excited to see something. And I'll just say, even if it's not Bowie, I was like, <laughs> it's Bowie. <laughs> and yeah. And so when we talked about how William's mom and Russell have that convo where she tells him, be bold and the mighty forces will come to your aid. Going back to the whole prayer that she has on the wall where she's sort of like in between being a logical thinking person, but yeah. also Like spiritual. even going back to, I know this is way back, but I was going to mention it. When she lets Will go on tour with them, 
Like he's like 15. I understand that he's been a good boy, but damn, like our mom wouldn't have no done way. that. No, it sort of reminds me going back to Dave Grohl, how his mother, you know, let him tour scream when he was still in high school. He never graduated high school and mm-hmm. how she was also a school teacher and educator. And I'm sure went against every bone in her body to let her, you know, 15 year old kid is like, yeah, I'm going to let him tour a punk rock band. Teachers, man. They're great. Yeah. I feel like they're just like, you know what? If you're going to fuck up, you're going to do it. And it's not going to be my fault. Yeah. I'm not going to clean up your mess. You're going to have to deal with it. And so that phone call actually really happened several times with Cameron Crowe's mom. So it happened with Glenn Hughes, Glenn Fry, and Greg Allman. They all spoke to his mom at some point. I guess she had to speak to a bunch of band people over the course of Cameron Crowe pretty much going off and gallivanting with rock stars, which I can't imagine. That would be great to have those recordings of those Totally. Oh my God. Yeah. This is also where I start to notice that you can tell that the road, the tour is kind of getting to the band where they're starting to get tired, especially the way that Dick says still water and then and he kind of like, slicks ah. his head back and is just like, and that's a big complaint that bands have in reality where they go on tour and in the beginning it's like hunky dory like it's awesome i'm away from my home i'm partying but like you hit the it one year toll, mark man. year and a half mark and some bands are like i Do can't you imagine partying for a year i can only do it for like two days and having to perform like it's not just partying yeah. but then you have a two-hour set and yeah to work only two hours out of a full day but if you're just like recovering from the day before being hung over and then having a party and then redo it over and over again. It's also the venue. Do you know the venue? Yes. So even though it's Cleveland, I was really happy to read this. It's actually the Hollywood Palladium. I called it the last time I watched the movie. I was like, I know that venue. And then I saw like the lighting strips and I was like, that's gotta be either like the Nokia theater. And then I was like, no, it's the Palladium. Yeah. Cause it didn't exist then. And then when I re- the second time I watched it recently, I was like, I'm going to find out what that venue is. And it was a Palladium. I was yeah. Like, yes. Stillwater does a three song set at the Cleveland show. And it's cool because in the behind the scenes, they do all the songs in their entirety. They don't they don't do it like in the, in the film where it's like abbreviated versions of the songs. So they do Love Comes and Goes, Hour of Need, and You Had to Be There. I mean, it feels like an excerpt from like The Last Waltz. Like it, it looks like an actual concert movie. Yeah. And in between like Jason Lee's like, we love you Cleveland or like, we're so happy to be here. And then when he does Hour of Need, he talks about, you know, Hour of Need was back from the Jeff BB band days, which is like Stillwater before mm-hmm. Stillwater. When they do uh, You Had to Be There, Jeff is like, this is the first song me and Russell wrote together. So the banter between the band and the audience is like what you would see Normal. from like a, yeah. a real band. So after the Cleveland show, William's fourth attempt to get Russell's interview and fails, enter Jimmy Fallon or Dennis <laughs> Hope. And he goes on this spiel of how they owe, no, they owe more money than they have and that they owe uh, the record company more money. And that rather than running away when they like went through the gate, when Russell was shocked that they could have, I don't remember sued exactly what sued them rather than running away. Because contract or something. That's why they can't. But the record selling. And yeah. that's a good thing. And he wants to fly instead of taking the bus um, because they could do more tour dates mm-hmm. and go to cities quicker and have more shows and make more money that way. But they take obsession because of their bus, Doris. Yeah. Uh, and there's like, it's the heart and soul of this band and blah, blah, blah. 
Jeff says, the bus has been our home since we were the Jeff BB band. No way. And so another reference to like their, their previous band, they ignore that and they end up going on the airplane and then they fly to Boston. Before that though, which I think is a really good, it's kind of like saying goodbye to the way they were doing things. And then there's like an abrupt, like almost record scratch to them doing things differently. Now, after the Cleveland, it's Cleveland, right? After the Cleveland show, you get that scene. It's a really pretty scene of Penny and she's dancing in the empty auditorium or the empty arena, which I don't know if that's still the Palladium. I think it is. I think it is. Also, that scene, I think, is shortened in the theatrical cut. It's way longer in the untitled cut because it almost plays through like half of the song. So she's dancing and then there's a banner in the back that says where music really means something or something like that. And so you have this beautiful scene of her dancing with, I, I should have looked up the song. It's a beautiful song too. You have this scene of her dancing and she's just like throwing the confetti in the air that was on the floor, which when I first saw it, I was like, that's gross. She's dancing barefoot in an arena where there was like thousands of people. There's like food on the floor. Anyway, I'll suspend my disbelief. So she's dancing. And then right from that, you get a cut to them walking up the plane steps to Jimi Hendrix Voodoo Child. So I think that's a really good juxtaposition of scenes because you get this like really soft scene right after or right when they're discussing how they're going to ditch the bus and go on the plane. And then you get the cut and then it's like a really hard Jimi Hendrix song and they're like walking up the plane. William goes into the hotel room in Boston and it's Russell and Dick. And Peter Frampton. And Peter Frampton. And Mitch Hedberg. That's right. The late great Mitch Hedberg. So good. So they're like the tour managers and they're basically playing. What Dick says is like, this is poker for when we're really fucked up, when we're like under the influence and like yeah. we can still play it. That's pretty much what Cameron Crowe said is that someone mentioned the game and said that, that that's why they would play is because you could play it while you're all messed up. And he's like, all right, that's what we're doing. That's what we're going to play in the scene. They're basically because they're heading to New York where Russell's wife is i think it's his girlfriend but i thought they were married she was like an ex and then they got together it was i don't know if it's like his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend but they were together for a while and so knowing that they have to get rid of the band-aids and penny lane and so that's where dick proposes like whoever wins this hand gets the band-aids with penny lane and a case of beer they obviously lose a hand and basically or it was 50 bucks 50 bucks in a case of beer a case of beer And that's why we're drinking Heineken because it was the case of beer was Heineken. Yep. And so they lose a hand. William is there to witness it. And that's sort of a rude awakening of what these guys are doing. And then Russell takes them aside and is like, oh, we know what we're getting into. And yeah, no one's getting hurt. No one's getting hurt. She knows that she has to leave anyways Mm because his ex is going to be there and all that. And so then they, William and Penny have it out. I think another scene that makes that betrayal so much worse is in the untitled cut before the scene you're about to mention where William and Penny talk about it. And then after Penny basically gets sold for beer and money, they celebrate Penny's birthday at the show that they're at. They're like at a fairgrounds. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It looks like fairgrounds. It's Penny's birthday. Wow. And they bring her a cake. And they sing a song and the cake is like a chocolate cake. And it says, 
It says like the unforgettable Penny Lane, age unknown, 1973. And Russell like writes her a poem. And it's like, it's a really bad poem, but he writes her a poem and he says it in front of everyone and they celebrate her birthday. And this is after he's agreed to give her to humble pie for beer. That's awful. Which I think they should have left that in because that makes it so much worse. Makes it way worse. Yeah. So yeah, like you're saying, it it is sort of like a fairgrounds and they're like going off into the trees. It's beautifully shot. And so that's when he basically says, yeah, where she's kind of in denial and still thinking that she could change Russell and and basically is like, you're not there when we're alone and the things that he tells me. And and basically then William like slams her with the usual. A guy that would sell you to humble pie for 50 bucks in a case of beer. And then that's when she like starts crying. But again, to Kate Hudson's ability cries, but then says, what kind of beer? Yeah. I really like that. She did that. I know earlier we mentioned when he's talking to her in the bathroom and he's telling her that like they might be using her. And we were like, well, either she doesn't know or she knows and she doesn't care or she knows and she's just playing it too. That's kind of another ambiguous scene where she's she's obviously sad, but then she says, what kind of beer? So you're like, did she know this the whole time and she's still heard about it? To me at that point, I feel like she is all in on Russell. Definitely. Like she's and hiding it totally really well, but yeah. you could tell that she really wants to be with with Russell. Yeah. Fast forward to New York, Led Zeppelin's Misty Mountain Hop. Another scene that I need to bring up that wasn't in the theatrical cut when we were talking about Cameron Crowe stealing stuff or William taking stuff when he's upset. When they get to New York, they're taking all their bags out of the taxi cab. And Will has this like, I don't know if it's like a Pan Am bag, but it's like a blue duffel. And it completely rips open and out of it comes spilling phone books, phone books, ashtrays, notebooks, just like all the shit he's stolen from all of the hotels. And Cameron Crowe in the commentary was saying that that actually happened to him, (laughs) that he he would just take phone books from every city because he would open it and be like, oh, look at all these people that like live in this city. And he would just take the phone books from all the cities he was at. And so when he got there, like his fucking bag just ripped open and all these phone books just came flying (laughs) out. And later on in the movie, you can see William has his bag like duct taped because it was like ripped. Okay. Yeah. So we get to New York. Penny and Sapphire are with Zeppelin at the Plaza Hotel. They are under the name of Emily Rugburn. Emily Rugburn. I don't know. What do you think about that name? It kind of sounds like a vagina joke or something. I don't, I don't know. That's, that was immediately what I thought of when I heard it. Just like a childish joke, kind of. I always thought of it as just a play of Eleanor Rigby, but it, it might could be, be that. both things. <laughs> it could be both things. You don't know. William gets word from San Francisco, from Rolling Stone, that Stillwater will get the cover. And I love is like Lanny Leibovitz is going to shoot the cover. Now, if you don't know who Lanny Leibovitz is, famous photographer, got her start, you know, at Rolling Stone shooting bands. And then now she can shoot whatever she wants. She does Vanity Fair. Anytime there's a big sort of celebrity cover in any magazine, she's the go to. So at the time she was shooting a lot of Rolling Stone stuff. And so she and actually one of the first photos that she shot of Cameron Crowe was with Pete Townsend of The Who. And it's a shot of them just talking outside. I forget where they were at, but it's a really great shot of black and white. And Cameron Crowe talks about he was shitting his pants. That's those; These are his <laughs> words. Because not only is he talking to Pete Townsend, one of his heroes, but Annie Leibovitz is shooting that photo. So he's yeah. like, I was in the legend sandwich yeah. of like two legends in their profession. 
the other thing too is Ben Fontora is, is talking to William and he says, send us anything that you have, all your notes. And he says, uh, how am I supposed to do that? And he's like, you go to, uh, oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> you go to this place and you go a mojo. He's like, a mojo. And he's like, yeah, it's this place where you, you can send us pages and it takes us 18 minutes a page. So it's essentially a fax machine before a fax machine. He's like, it's so fast. Yeah. Russell's now with his ex-partner and... And he's wearing this amazing purple velvet jacket that I also need to get. Penny Lane is there in the background trying to get his attention and... Uh, and but also William. like, why would you go? It's a rookie, anyway. rookie mistake. Ah. Rookie mistake. So everyone's sort of in their own business and William's trying to get their attention and whatever. And then he says... You guys got the cover. And finally, everyone stops talking and... Take and all kinds of pills to give us all kinds of thrills. Yeah, that song. Who sings it? I don't... Give me a hint. Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to get it. It was written by Shel Silverstein. What? Yeah. Shel Silverstein? Like a light in the attic? Yes. Where the sidewalk ends? Yeah. Oh my God. And it's sung by Dr. Hook. Okay, I never got that. Russell shakes William's hand and then that's when Jeff Beebe's like, I'm going to enjoy this. And he's like, they don't just put anyone on the cover of Rolling Stone and then they start singing. Yeah. But it's bittersweet because you have Penny in the background. It's like the high point of the band's career at that point. It's that's her when, low point. And it's her low point at the same exact time. I love the moment where Russell's partner is like, who is that? She so keeps she's like freaking me out. She's freaking me out. And then she's like, is she with any of you guys? And then it was like, this was me. Yeah. Dick goes and like consoles her. And the song that's playing Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's Cameron Crowe actually had that playing while they were filming the scene. Oh man. So all everyone's reaction is genuine, especially Kate Hudson's. Right. And that's actually something that he mentions. He does a lot in the commentary is that if there's like a scene like that where you need the music to evoke an emotional response, then he plays it. So like similarly earlier in the movie, I don't remember what song it is, but there's a song that's playing when Penny and Russell, like when William introduces quote unquote Penny and Russell, there's a song that's playing in the background and that was actually playing when they were filming too. I love when directors do that when if you're going to put them in a scene and if it's a song or... I don't know, a photograph or a description of something that's going to help the actors get into that scene. It's like, yeah, I feel like it's so much better, it. like obviously give them a direction, but it's so much easier. At least, I mean, for me, if I was acting for them to play the song, then for the actor to be like, okay, now you feel betrayed. Like I know <clears throat> one of the things that comes to mind immediately is in La La Land. There's a scene where Emma Stone's character is at a restaurant and she realizes something and then she like runs out of the restaurant. Um, I read that um, Damien Chazelle had an earpiece. She had an earpiece in and he was playing the music through the speakers and her earpiece. So okay. when it swells in the movie, you could hear it. She could hear it as well. And it gives them cues of when to move yeah, and exactly. when to do action and when to like hold back and stuff like that. William then runs out and goes after Penny, even though Russell sort of gets up. But then obviously his ex is right there. So he needs to sit his ass back down. And so you see William run out and he's looking for through taxi cabs. And then finally remembers, oh, Plaza Hotel. So he goes to the Plaza Hotel, goes to the room where she's at. I love when he trips. Oh, yeah. I always wonder. I didn't find out if that was genuine or not. 
It looks pretty real. It looks pretty real. Yeah. I think he actually tripped. But, but I love, how he plays it I off love too. It, yeah. He's like, oh, nothing happened. Yeah. And then he opens the door and she's drugged out of her mind. This and insane all. room at the plaza. Yeah. It's like blue and like I've extra only been things. into the lobby of the plaza, but Pod. I can imagine those rooms being, Pod. you know, so elaborate. She's been drinking on Quaaludes and obviously about to pass out. The contrasts, again, with the music, with um, William's graduation, and he's trying to like tell her to stay awake and is kind of dancing with her with the song. Yeah. There's a lot of things happening, but again, the contrast, the cutting back and forth between his graduation or what should have been his graduation and his mom and then his reality. When I was talking about the groupies, like the real life Penny Lanes, and I was talking about specifically Pamela DeBar and how she didn't agree with a lot of the moments that Penny goes through. This was like the big one where she was like, you know what? This would have never happened. All the girls that were in this knew it was just for funsies and they all knew not to get involved. And I kind of agree with her because not because like, obviously I don't know groupie culture, the way that Penny's presented in the beginning of the movie like the penny in the beginning of the movie would have never done something like that. So that's why I was kind of like, mm, I don't know. But also when you think of that, she's at the point of retiring. And again, going back to how I asked you, like when she says about Russell, this is my last project. Yeah. That maybe there's an underlying of this is, I'm going to keep Russell or my goal is to hold on to Russell. Yeah. Even though it's, it's easier said than done that maybe that is her project to steal him away from his ex or whatever. I could see it both ways. Like I, I understand where the real Penny Lane is coming from and that mm-hmm. it would never happen. And I think she even talks about how everyone was just like, if someone dumped you or if a band dumped you, you He's were moved. on to the there next, the next band. band. There was someone week. else that you can yeah. hang out with and uh, hook up with. She mentions that bands wrote songs about the gr- the girls, like the muses. They're the ones that still talk about them. Like the girls don't really talk about the bands. It's the opposite way. So she's like, if anyone was to get attached, it was them. I see her point of like that that would never happen in real life. But also I think about if I'm writing a movie and I'm trying to hit a climax emotionally, how am I going to do that with these characters and what I've already set up? And so I don't know. I was curious to to maybe that in the commentary. Mm-hmm. Does he say anything about that scene or not really anything? Maybe reference like that he heard. No, like the only thing that. he really mentions is that they contacted like a family doctor just to make sure they got that scene right. As far as like maybe the stomach pumping or whatever, like what an OD would look like. Do you think it's weird that William kisses Penny in her state? Normally, I would say no. I think it's just the fact that we get to know William throughout the whole movie and he's like only 15. So I feel like the kiss comes from innocence, maybe naive side. He's obviously been in love with her this entire time. His fear of her rejecting him was so big that he had to wait. And I don't know, that sounds terrible too. I, I don't know. I, I don't really take it as like a weird thing. I also think that he thinks she might die. So yeah, this is his last right, opportunity right, right, right. as fucked up situation as totally. it can be. Like you're saying, he's so intimidated by her that this is his only shot to 
tell her how he feels. Yeah. It's complicated. It totally is because yeah, you could argue. I don't know. Like he's not like trying to make out with her. No. He like literally just like kisses her. And it's like a 50, like a 16 year old kiss. Yeah. It's not like Right. And he's not like groping her or anything. Right. Right. Taking advantage of her. Um, And then she even says like. (laughs) She like makes a noise before uh, she passes out, which is really funny to me. The scene where like they're pumping her stomach to uh, Stevie Wonder's uh, My Sharia Moore. That's every time I see that scene, it reminds me of a Clockwork Orange and um, Singing in the Rain. Because it's there are two songs that have nothing to do (laughs) with the scene that they're in, but add to it in a weird way. This woman's about to be gang raped, essentially. And you're playing I'm singing in the rain. And then you have someone that's on the verge of killing themselves. And like, although I feel like it's different with my Sherry, because William's like looking at her and like even the expression on his face, it's kind of just like, like, I'm like totally in love with this, with this girl. You think so? Like I can, like she's at her lowest point right now and I'm still like totally head over heels in love with her to me that look is fear and i'm happy that they're saving your life yeah but also like this is really <laughs> fucked <laughs> up <laughs> i'm never gonna survive it's this. such a <laughs> all credit to patrick it's it's a hard look to sort of yeah. direct someone to be yeah that's so true. i see all of that in in his eyes that's true but yeah every time i see that scene it's really uncomfortable and again a song that i would never in a million years pick to be there. If I'm moment. not mistaken, I think that might've been what I'm like the queen of catching movies at the end. I think that might've been one of the first scenes I saw of that movie. Really? Is that scene. Penny's life is saved and now they're walking through Central Park. And that's when Penny reveals her real name, Lady Goodman. I do know that that shot uh, at Central Park at the lake was the last shot filmed. And... Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn were all there. And yeah, that was one of, that was the last shot filmed. Which by the way, Kate Hudson there, it's Goldie Hawn's daughter, not Kurt Russell's daughter, but Kurt Russell's daughter. Yeah. And, um, the speech she gives about, you know, how she kind of joined the circus and never left was based on something BB Buell had said, which I is something else that I heard. We get to the airport and, Again, a classic Cameron Crowe staple of a scene. Yeah, which is also joined by Nancy Wilson's music, which is another perfect scene that her music is in. Yep. And so William is in the airport and Penny is on the plane. And basically he's looking out the window, seeing the plane take off, marrying what happened with Sapphire as she's like running along with the bus and telling William what his mom told him. Now it's reverse where William is running along with the plane, seeing Penny take off. And when he hits the the glass, what's I don't think it's glass, it's like maybe like fiberglass yeah. or something. That's another, you know, in your eyes Hold the boombox. moment. As he's running, you can see she has her hand on the window and he's like running through her fingers, essentially, is what you see happening. Yeah. Which is Really cool. And after he hits the glass, mm-hmm. there's remnants of his like yeah, handprint, yeah, which you I can love see that they left. They could have like wiped it off, wiped it off, and like have it clean so you could really see his. Yeah, but I, lo- yeah. I love that they just like left it there. So you have still water on the plane. There's a thunderstorm that they're traveling through, and once that first shake hits, you hear Russell start singing Peggy Sue, 
Oh Peggy yeah. Sue. Yeah. In reference to Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens, which if you don't know, were stuck in a storm in real life and crashed and they were killed. And at the time, you know, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Big Bopper, they were at the height of their... Yeah, that was the day the music died. The day the music died, exactly. After Almost Famous came out, I don't know how true this is, but U2 was on a similar private jet going through a similar... Um, storm and I'll get to it but Bono blurts out a line from a later bit in the scene so what I have on the plane references is that it happened twice to Cameron Crowe like a plane almost crashing once with the who in 1973 and another time with Hart. and he also mentions which I didn't know about Leonard Skinner was in like a terrible plane accident and a few of them died like I don't think of the band but I think like road crew Oh, wow. Which Cameron Crowe mentions that two that did died were like two people he was really close with at the time. Wow. So he's like, that was kind of a thing too. Everyone in the band and crew starts admitting their guilt and their truths. And so it starts with Dennis played by Jimmy Fallon. And he starts saying how he like ran over some dude. Yeah. And just kept going and kept going. And then it goes to Dick about, you know, stealing money from the band. And if it was okay, if he stole a dollar or two while they were together. And then Russell says that he like loves everyone and like, and that's when things start falling apart because Jeff starts basically saying that, that no one ever loved Russell and that he always played above them and like basically go fuck yourself. And then Jeff admits that Leslie, who is uh, Russell's ex, that he slept with her and that he's still in love with her. And Leslie's like, shut up, Jeffrey. Yeah. Um, and then it goes back to Dick who Marna, who we don't know if it's his wife or his girlfriend. Jeff is like, I slept with Marna. And then I, and then Russell's like, I slept with Marna. And then the <laughs> bass player says, I slept with Marna. The only one who didn't is the drummer. It goes to William. And that's where William sort of lets out all the anguish of, you know, I was with her right as she was dying and you were with Bob Dylan yeah. in, at the, at the hotel in New York. And right. he's like, and I love her everyone sort of shuts up and then there's like a pause and then it goes to the drummer with this line and he finally says, I'm gay. <laughs> and that's the line that Bono said in a similar situation. I forget what tour it was, but it was like maybe like a decade ago yeah. where he basically said that the turbulence settles down and the pilots are like, we're going to make it. <laughs> and everyone's just like hating each other and hating life. You see them getting at the airport and they're all walking and then like William throws up in the trash I can. I love that too. That yeah. was so funny. And then when um, Jeff Beebe like hits the wall and he's like hitting it when they get there just to be like, I'm so glad we're on land. Yeah. <laughs> William kind of stays back as the band keeps going. And then that's when Russell looks back at William. And it's crazy because after all of that, there, William still has a look towards Russell where he still idolizes yeah. him. After all the shit that he did to to Penny. Being, and to him. And to yeah. him. And even though he says, write what you want to somehow still idolize. I think that's going back to the to the Phil Seymour Hoffman conversation that he had with, with Cameron Crowe about how you idolize these artists and then they do something to fuck it up and, yeah. and do something to like make you not want to like them but somehow you're still like you're still yeah, attached totally. to them especially being you know 16 years old like you know it, it makes sense why 
after all that, he still sort of looks up to, to Russell in, in a weird way. William goes to San Francisco, finally in Rolling Stone headquarters. And the fact checker is uh, checking all the facts. And I love the line she says where she's like, chick is on here. And as a woman, I take offense to that. I kind of hate that they made her that way. Like she's so bitchy. And I understand that she probably has to be that way because it doesn't look like any of the men around her do anything. So I, I get that. But I feel like to someone who's just watching the movie, they're like, man, why is she such a bitch? Like, damn. But I, I get that, like being a woman in the workplace then where it doesn't look like anyone else is doing much. Like, I'm sure she had to do a lot of the work as a fact checker. So like she had reason to be that way. But it was just like, I'm always like, man, why do they like make her so mean? She's right, just doing right. her job. They are having arguments about like what the story really is because all William has is like all these notes and like mm -hmm. there's no real storyline and they're pressuring William to like, what's the story? And he's like, I'm not finished. Like, give me a night to write yeah. on it. And so he gets to the typewriter and he's just trying to gather his thoughts and he has all the Polaroids and all that. And so he starts writing away the story. This is my favorite scene of the entire movie with Lester and, and William. It's like my favorite quote too. Every word of that scene is perfectly written. It's accurate. And to me, it's maybe the best written scene ever. Yeah. In a movie. I could put it up on a wall and just stare at it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not wordy. It's every word is exactly where it needs to be. And the performances are just brilliant by Phil Seymour Hoffman and, mm -hmm. and Patrick. When I first saw it, I felt like it was like speaking to me because yeah. it's speaking of being uncool and not part of the populist crowd. And he talks about how it takes effort for guys like us to get women. And that's what the great art is all about, is about the wanting the love and losing the love and getting it back and redemption and all that. And I think it's it's a beautiful scene. And William is teary-eyed and, and he was like, I'm really glad you're home. He's like, of course I'm home. I'm, I'm uncool. uncool. It sums it up so well. Yeah. And I love too that, it's sort of depressing yeah, in a way, but also I love how Lester is uplifting William because at the end of all that spiel that he gives him, he's like, you're doing great. Like he reinforces yeah. that he's doing a good job, yeah. not just being like, you know, he easily could have been like really over the top. You're not going to make it like your writing is no good, but he reinforces that he's doing a good job and and that he's going to come out of it okay. And I feel like that pushes William to write the story and, and finish it. Well, I mean, the quote is the currency quote about the only true currency having in a bankrupt world is what you share with someone when you're uncool. And that's like one of my favorite quotes in the entire movie. We cut to a scene with the band with Stillwater and they're going over the story that William wrote. They're like waiting to get on their tour bus. And Jeff Beebe's like reading over it. And he's like... The chicks are great. I sound like a dick. And you can kind of hear Russell say like, you are a dick, like really quietly, yeah. which is so funny. And he's wearing a Jeff Beebe shirt, which I didn't notice until I was watching it right now. But there's a scene that was cut from the theatrical release, which I think is actually really good. It's Jimmy Fallon as Dennis Hope. And he's giving the band a lesson in mystique and how they maybe shouldn't put everything out there because people will want more if they don't know everything. And he holds both of his hands out and one of them is closed and one of them has a lighter. And he's like, if I show you this, what do you want more? The lighter or what you can't see? And he's like, people always want what they can't see more than what they can. And it's like 
a weird little scene that they gave Jimmy Fallon. That's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's not bad. It's pretty good. William finishes the story and they're praising him. And the fact checker comes back and basically says that she talked to the band and basically denied 90% of the story, essentially breaking William's heart. And basically they're not going to go with the cover story of Stillwater. They're going to go with the who I think rain Wilson is like, he's just a fan or no, I no, think the, the fact, fact the checker fact does that. Yeah. He's just, a she's fan. like, what do you expect? He's just a fan. And so he goes to the airport distraught. And again, calling back to that almond story where he had the story, lost it. And now he's at the airport, doesn't know what to do. And then lo and behold, his sister shows up and then his sister sees how like messed up he looks. And then she tells the, the other flight attendant is like, I think I'm needed. And basically tells William anywhere you want to go, let's have an adventure. Anywhere in the world. And of course they go back home to San Diego to their mom's house. We get back home and Anita is not thrilled to go back, but she's doing it for her brother. And so you have the scene where they're reunited. And like, it's funny because like, rather than William's mom going for William, she goes for Anita. Yeah. I mean, she shoves Anita. Yeah. Um, But I would have thought that maybe she would like go hug her son. Right. Leave her, but she ends up going with, with her daughter. And then there's like that relief of like opening the door and like seeing your own bed and just like. So good. So good. Like I go on vacation for five days and I'm excited. Right. And then you have the line where Elaine is like, I forgive you. I and didn't Anita's apologize. Like, I didn't apologize. And they like both start laughing. <laughs> Once William gets into his bedroom and closes the door, he puts a do not disturb sign, throw back to Russell and, and Penny on, on tour. Then Russell makes a phone call and he calls Penny and basically is trying to save the relationship after he extremely fucked it up. And he says like, let's say all the things that we hadn't said to each other. And he's like, tell me where you live. And so she pulls out the address book. And even when I watched it, I didn't realize what what was going to happen. happen. I still thought that Russell was going to go back to Penny and, and, and all of that. And so Russell pulls up in a taxi cab and it's a house and he thinks it's Penny's, but it's really Williams and opens the door and it's, it's uh, Williams mom. He's like, I'm Russell from Stillwater. Or I think he just says, he says, is she here? And she's like, who Anita? And like Zoe Deschanel's in the back, like, who are you? And then he's walking towards Williams room and Anita goes, hello. And he goes, hi, Hi. (laughs) it's just like, the delivery of him saying hi is so good. Yeah. And then he starts seeing the photographs and then realizes, oh, I'm yeah. at William's house. Right. And he goes into his room and opens the door and he's, William's passed out. And then he wakes up and he looks really like he had just like slept through a nap. He's like, holy shit, it's Russell. And they have a conversation where Russell is like, you know, she wanted us to be together. You should give her a car. You live in the same city. William says like, we're going to do this right. And finally they have the interview interview that he's been wanting this entire time. He asks him, so Russell, what do you love about music? And then he says, what I didn't know was the title of a song. Right. Which earlier when you said the title of the song, that's why I was like, (gasps) cause he goes, well, to begin with, I really would like to own the Rolling Stone that they end up. What is the headline? What is the headline? Still water runs deep. Yes. Yes. Followed by a photo of them in profile and Russell's, and Russell's in the, in the very front. 
which yeah, I love. So good. It's a love, loving touch. And actually the last cut to black goes on for a really long time before you get any credits. And that's so that they could let Tangerine play. Oh, really? Before it goes into feel flows. Unless that's, that's the just, okay. Cut. I was going to say, unless that's just in the. Cause what I remember is it's like a montage of William and Anita and their mother at home eating dinner and then it's cutting to the band on tour yeah, and like yeah. Jeff and Russell right. getting along. And mm-hmm. then um, Penny on the plane going to, going Morocco, to Morocco and yeah. takes the glasses. Yeah. And then there's a wave that William does okay. when Russell's leaving. Apparently that wave is what how Cameron Crowe would do it. And like oh, okay. Patrick is like, yeah, uh, Cameron Crowe has this like weird wave that he does. And so I took that mannerism and put it into William. And so okay. like when he does that, it's Cameron Crowe doing it. Yeah. So you have all that. But then when it cuts to black from that, it finish not finishes Tangerine, but goes through. Oh, OK. A lot so more. That, yeah, tangerine. I think that's definitely in, the, in yeah. the director's cut. When we were going back to who Penny Lane was based off, I noticed at the very end that it says the character of Penny Lane was loosely based on an actual person. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't say who exactly who it is or that it was based off of of three women post movie the film was released on september 8th 2000 at the toronto international film festival but then it was released in north america on september 13 2000 again i have no memory of seeing it in the theaters it, it must have been on dvd or, or on cable um the budget was for 60 million dollars domestically it made a total of 32.5 million and internationally 47.4 million so Ideally, it made its money back. Yeah. But it wasn't like a, a huge financial success. At the rap party of the movie, Stillwater played. And that was the Sick. last gig that they ever played. <gasps> Cameron Crowe so cool. holds the faith that one day Stillwater will Could play you imagine? again. Oh, that'd be so cool. Almost Famous was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Original Screenplay for Cameron Crowe, Best Supporting Actress for Kate Hudson. Best Supporting Actress for Frances McDormand and Best Film Editing. It only won one, but to me, it was the best one. It was for original screenplay for, for Cameron Crowe. He dedicated his win to his family and the music that inspired him. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see him with Nancy Wilson at the time and both just enjoying the moment yeah. and knowing that they're n- no longer together. Other nominees for original screenplay at the time were for Billy Elliot, Aaron Brockovich, Gladiator, and you can count on me, which I think out of all those films, I think they got it absolutely right. Even totally. though that was a year for Gladiator when it won everything. Yeah. Other nominees for Best Supporting Actress, which I think this is what hurt Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand because they were both nominated in the same category. Right. Whenever there's, yeah, that always happens. Marsha Gate Harn for Pollock, who won. Judy Dench for Chocolat. Wow. Kate Hudson for Almost Famous, Frances McDormand for Almost Famous, and Julie Walters for Billy Elliot. Crazy. And then the other, uh, the nominees for Best Picture that year were Gladiator, Chocolat, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. Fucking Soderbergh, double nominee for Best Picture. Can you believe that? No. When I read that, I, I was like, what? Chocolat? I love like that, that movie. movie. I love that movie. But like, Best Picture? No. Do you think Almost Famous should have been nominated for yeah, Best Picture? Yeah, over Chocolat so. for sure. And I think if the Oscars was how it is now, where it's up to 10 nominees, it no doubt would have been totally, nominated. Definitely. But when was the last time a director, a director of a film I got can't even two think of, Best Picture nominees? I can't. I can't think of it off the top of my head. 
I'm thinking maybe David Aline back in the day in the 60s. Could be. But off the top of my head, I, I yeah, can't Yeah, I can't think really think about it. Going back to the original question we started with, is Stillwater the greatest fictional rock band of all time, at least in movies? We were talking about pitting them against some of our other favorite fictional bands. So we came up with a little list that you guys can also kind of decide which one's your favorite, but we're going to see if Stillwater can beat all of these bands. So we have Josie and the Pussycats from one of my favorite fictional band movies, Josie and the Pussycats. We have the Blues Brothers, Spinal Tap, and then we have the Wonders from another one of my favorite fictional band Which will definitely movies. be a podcast. That's definitely going to be a future podcast for sure. So Manny, what do you think? It's difficult. I'll rule out Blues Brothers, even though I love Blues Brothers, but I feel like their trajectory doesn't beat Stillwater, especially after discovering that Stillwater has like three records out. I, I don't think, I think the Blues Brothers have like maybe a few singles and that's it. Even though it's great music. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats, I don't know that much about. They have one record. But is it like a full record or is it? It's a full record. Okay. The Wonders have a close. That one's tier, hard. That one's a hard but one. But also I think about, they also had a handful of songs and they had a, a single that came out and it was like, and they were a one hit wonder. Yeah. Ha ha ha. I think because Spinal Tap is is a parody, it's a mockumentary, it's hard for me to take it seriously, even though that's the whole point of Spinal Tap. To me, it's between, it would be Stillwater and, and The Wonders. Same, which and, I mean, everyone saw that coming. Well, at least anyone that knows us. Yeah. I might have to give the edge with the knowledge that I know to Stillwater. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. And it reminds me a lot of a question I saw on Twitter that was like, what fictional band would you love to see in concert? And I was like, obviously the wonders, but then I was like, no, wait, still water. And yeah, I think I'd rather. See what about Josie and the Pussycats though? Yeah, I think I'd rather see still water. <laughs> I, I love Josie and the Pussycats, but I think as a band, mostly because of the way they're treated as a band in the movie, I think it gives them less cred than still water. And I won't say why in case we have to feature the movie on the podcast later. After going through the movie and all the production, what what are your final thoughts on Almost Famous? I think one of the biggest things I thought about was, especially with all the 20-year stuff that's going on, is if it still holds up. And I kind of think it holds up more now than it did when it came out because it's built this like following, especially because, I think mostly because of the soundtrack. And I read... I can't remember where, but I read an article that was saying that the reason Almost Famous was going to keep up was because the soundtrack was going to be so playable. And I think that's kind of one of the big reasons. And it's one of those movies where, like, I know it's one of my favorite movies and I kind of won't watch it for a while. But as soon as I put it back in, it's like I'm watching it for the first time again. Like, it's just that feeling that you get when you watch it for the first time. If you love it, it just doesn't ever fade. And so I think it really keeps up. I think what I take about Almost Famous is the emotion. And like I was saying how Cameron Crowe does guy flicks. His films sort of hit me in a different place than other films. And they feel very personal. And Cameron Crowe talks about how this is his definitely his most personal film out of all the films that he's made. And I think anytime that I see a director speak in that regard about their films... 
and I see it. There's something to be said about making something that's personal. I feel whether it's a film, whether it's music, whether it's a book, anything uh, artistic that you really spend the time and it comes from a personal spot, a personal place in your, in, in your soul, in your heart, that comes through automatically. There's something about his love about music and his family and the people that affected him that just sort of bleed through the screen and you can't help be affected by it. You know, it's hard to say that I wish every filmmaker would just do personal stories. Their films would be that much better. But I think it's true. If you think about all the great films that have existed, it's usually the personal ones, the ones that they've been thinking about for a decade, the one that they've been really taking their time to sort of build up and write and then produce. It's usually those that end up being better than, hey, I'm just going to take a paycheck and I'm getting paid X amount of dollars and to produce it. And like, because there's no personal connection to it. That's what I think anyways. And so that's what Almost Famous sort of represents to me that it's it's very personal and it it hits you in that sort of part of your part of your being. Now, we like to end these podcasts with a double feature. And so if you don't know what a double feature is back in the day, or if you've any of you that have gone to drive in movies, you get to see two movies for the price of one. So Angie, what would you pair up Almost Famous? So I know I've mentioned it several times throughout the course of this podcast. And it's because they're both movies that I enjoy probably equally. And both of their soundtracks are killer. Both scores by Nancy Wilson, both directed by Cameron Crowe. I'm going to pick Elizabeth. Town. Of course. I'm picking Elizabeth Town and I'm sticking to it. Elizabeth Town is definitely more emotional in terms of like the self discovery and family and almost famous just kind of captures a certain feeling of being at a concert, being with your favorite band. So I think they both kind of evoke similar feelings and they both have really good soundtracks. I had to think long and hard because I didn't want it to be something expected. I wanted it to be still in the realm of almost famous, but something a little bit different. And I, I slapped myself in the face when I didn't think of it before, because it took me like a half hour to realize but my double feature is American Graffiti. Okay. Not only does it have a killer soundtrack, right. but it's also a coming of age story. Again, opening the eyes of young kids to what's in front of them in the future and the uncertainty of it and and has a great cast of characters. Yeah. And you have your the people that you look up to, which are the street racers, and then you have like the nerdy kids and the 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 kids that don't seem to belong and are trying to find a place to belong to. This concludes our search for the greatest fictional rock band of all time. In conclusion, the winner was Stillwater. Congratulations. If you made it this far into the podcast, you are officially uncool. If you want to suggest movies for us to watch for future episodes of cut, just another movie podcast, you can email us at cutmoviepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on all social media at cutmoviepod. Instagram, Twitter, you can find us on YouTube as well. So you can see our video episode of this podcast coming up, not next week. We're going to take a break next week, but the week after that, we're going to go into my favorite spooky season, especially because I'm making Manny do all of it. We're going to watch hopefully three different movies. We're going to start off with one of the classics. I think you guys are really going to enjoy. So thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Cut. 
That's a wrap. <laughs>